Um, so this week is is still an introduction to to the book of Revelation. You know, some books you can just start at verse one and that's fine, but this is the kind of book where you kind of have to do a, a bit of practice before you uh, get on the field, so to speak. Uh, so last week we talked about uh, the big themes of a letter, what what it's really about. Um, it's about worship and allegiance, right? that worship uh, belongs to God and not to any other um, forces that might demand our, our worship. Uh, it's about the reality of evil and also that God is going to defeat evil. Uh, here, let me share my screen and we can get, uh, get these slides up. Um, so, yeah, it's, Revelation is about revealing, right? So pulling back the curtain, seeing uh, what the forces of evil really are and what they're up to. Uh, and then conquering and suffering. The idea of of being victorious and yet seeing that um, victory is not always the way that we would expect, but it comes, in fact, in some sense through suffering, right? And Jesus is the, you know, the example of this. He's called the slaughtered lamb throughout the book. And so he's our, our picture of, of what conquering looks like. And so then we also talked last week about uh, how is that message presented and looking at the genres of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's an apocalypse, which is uh, a genre of literature that was kind of popular during the time, kind of, um, you know, I'd say about 200 years before uh, the turn of the, the birth of Christ and then for a little bit after. But there's not much of it in the Bible, and so it's not something we're used to. And it's a genre that, you know, again, it's uh, the word apocalypse means to reveal, right? And so it's showing you what's really going on. Um, and showing how God is going to act. And it uses a lot of symbolic language to do that. Uh, and then uh, Revelation also, it, uh, John describes it often as prophecy. Um, but as I've, as I've talked about before, prophecy is not just about predicting the future. It's more saying, here's what God is, is doing, what God is up to, where things are going. And here's how you should live into that. Right? You can be on the right side of where it's going or on the wrong side. And if you're on the wrong side, uh, it may not go well. So it can both uh, comfort if you're experiencing uh, persecution or, or, or difficult things, but it can challenge if you're not living up to God's standards of, of justice and righteousness and all those sort of things. So it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and it's also a letter. Uh, we, we're going to see this uh, next week once we start getting into the beginning of the book, but it, it, it is a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey uh, in the first century. And so that shapes how we read it today, right? It's, it's written to them and it's still for us. And so that helps us avoid a lot of the tendencies that certain uh, interpreters take of thinking it's all about us and what's happening in our day. Uh, but when we see it as a letter, it has to start with what did this mean to the first people who, who read it and heard it? And then from there, we can figure out, okay, how is it relevant to us? So uh, any questions about those, those first couple of things that we talked about last week? Uh, things we're, we're going back a little bit to, to last week's discussion, but I want to give you a chance just to say anything. You may have to unmute yourselves. I haven't muted everybody yet, but uh, yeah. If you ever have questions or comments, just let me know and we'll, we'll look, talk about those. All right, well, today then we're going to look at the third aspect to our introduction, which is, okay, we've seen what the message is, how it's presented, how do we understand that message, and talk about different methods of interpreting Revelation. 
because there are a lot of different ones uh, and they all kind of have their strengths and weaknesses. I would say some are weaker than others. And I'll at least show you, here's the way that I'm gonna be looking at, at this book. And as we go through this study, here's the method that we're gonna try and try and use. So got a fun chart here. Uh, this comes from a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly, uh, a, a great little guide to looking at this book. And so we're going to look at different approaches to Revelation kind of on this graph. Uh, on one axis, you see there's a, you can focus on the past, the present, or the future, which that's, that's pretty obvious, right? Is it all talking about things that happened long ago? Is it all about things that are happening uh, in the future sometime or somewhere in between? Uh, and then the other axis, uh, got to explain a little more. Uh, at the bottom, you see there's a you can read the text as a code, right? The Revelation is a code for the end times, and so the the strategy is to decode it, figure out what does this code represent, who is this person in modern times that it's talking about, uh, and decipher those those things. And the goal is to figure out what corresponds to what, right? Uh, Babylon is this country. Uh, right it's kind of one for one but then on the other end at looking at the top thinking of the text as a lens it's more about thinking in analogies right this thing is like that thing uh, that it's not one for one it's uh, seeing how is this thing that revelation talks about similar to what happens now how is it similar to what's happened in the past and, and in between and in some ways like actualizing it making that happen uh, seeing that happen in, in our time. Turn down. Um, so again, that, that's kind of uh, seems a little strange, but as we start looking at some of these different methods, we'll see how that, how that fits in. So uh, four methods that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the first one uh, is the futurist or predictive model of interpreting revelation, right? So you see that the number one down there on the bottom, right? So it's future focus, and it reads the text as a code. Here we see how this, this graph is, is working. So this would be things like uh, the Left Behind series of books and movies, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible, which was uh, a popular reference Bible uh, a couple hundred years ago that really started a lot of this uh, end times sort of theology. Uh, dispensationalists, this is where they would, would read this, uh, read Revelation. Uh, the positive of this way of reading it is that it does make it very relevant, right? That you're looking for signs and it's, this is all happening now, right? So let's figure out what the code is and, and interpret all these things. But I would also say that this futurist reading is the most problematic uh, because we can just look and see that the past is littered with failed attempts to read Revelation as prediction. Uh, that this is where it really is saying, you know, this book is about this person uh, and these historical events that are happening in my lifetime. Uh, it's, it's kind of self-centered, right? To think, well, we're the ones that finally got this right and figured out the code. And we finally figured out the dates and times when Jesus is going to come back, even though everybody else before me has failed. You know, I'm smarter than all of them. So I figured it out. Um, or to say like, yeah, for 2,000 years of Christian history, this book was really just irrelevant, and it's talking about things in our day. Uh, both of those, uh, I think, do a disservice to everyone who's gone before us, including the original audience, right? This future focus uh, kind of ignores them completely. They just wrote it down 
so that we could read it when it applies to us and talks about our situation. Uh, and so an example, we'll look at uh, the this idea of Babylon, right? That's a big character or element to the book of Revelation. We'll see how each of these different methods would, would interpret what Babylon is, right? So in this futurist predictive model, Babylon is just some new superpower that's coming, right? Uh, like the UN or the EU that becomes a, a modern Roman empire. Uh, and that's all it ever has meant is it's talking about this thing that's about to happen. Um, all right, any questions about that, that model, the, the futurist perspective there? All right, so the next one, number two, uh, my slides will go, is the historical model. Uh, another word, uh, nerd word is preterist, which just means past tense. So this would be the in the bottom left. So it's past focused, but still reading it as a code. Um, so in this reading, it's only about the, the original audience, the original context. Um, it assumes that everything in Revelation has already happened, or in some cases, even that certain things ended up not happening. Right? So uh, the positive is it is very grounded in the original audience, but the negative is it's really not relevant to us. This is just a way that John uh, was trying to interpret the events in his day, uh, and that's about all that, that it meant. Um, and so in this example, Babylon equals Rome. The Roman Empire, and that's all that Babylon is. It was just the Roman Empire, um, and it doesn't mean anything more than that. All right, so that's you don't hear that as much, but that is a view that's out there. Uh, the third view, is, you call it poetic or non-historical. We're seeing this is uh, number three here. It's in the middle, uh, so it's kind of focused on the present, and it is reading it more just as a lens, not as a code. Uh, and so, in this method, Revelation is giving just sort of timeless truths about you know, the struggle between good and evil, about God overcoming evil. Uh, and so it's just kind of allegories. It doesn't really connect to anything that's actually happening in real life. Uh, it's just kind of a general story of God defeating evil. And so, you know, the positive would be that it can speak to everybody in all times, because there's always evil that God is, is hopefully working against. And yet it, again, ignores the original audience, and it just kind of makes it all too general. You know, I, I have to believe that John was trying to say something a little more specific than just, um, you know, evil's around and God's doing something about it. That's true, <laughs> but I think it says more than that as well. And so uh, the fourth method, the one that we're going to use, is I'm um, calling it uh, pastoral or prophetic. Um, and we see it, it starts on the left with uh, in the past, but then it does. it's not limited to that. I think the best interpretive method it doesn't just stay on one point in the chart. Um, and so the way we're going to look at this is that the original context, uh, who John was writing to, that's kind of like our anchor point, right? We start there, and yet we can move a little bit from that as long as we stay anchored to the original audience and what John intended. Um, so it's not just about the past, but it doesn't ignore the past either. And so there's a symbolic meaning, right? It's more, it's on the top half of the graph where it's a, about a lens rather than a code. So these sim symbols that we see have continuing relevance, right? We'll talk more in a minute about the difference between symbols and codes. Uh, but I would say it's more about showing a pattern, right? Things that have happened in the past, uh, things that happen now and things that have happened in between and probably will happen in more in the future. Uh, there's a pattern revelation that we see over and over. 
Um, and there's still a future focus, right? Unless you believe that evil has finally been dealt with already, uh, there's still things that, that God needs to do. I think we could probably all agree that there's things that God still needs to set right in the world. And so that's why it's still looking to the future as well. So in this example, Babylon uh, represents Rome. Uh, in some sense, it represents America and it represents every empire or powerful nation in between those times, right? Some more than others uh, and some in different ways, but we can see that that symbol of Babylon it resonates throughout history. So those are the four methods. Like I said, we're gonna focus on the fourth. I think number one is the most common, but the most problematic. And that's the one I'm gonna reject most of the time. Um, but those are different methods. And as you hear different people talk about revelation, you can kind of try and figure out, okay, where are they coming from? Uh, what's their method of interpreting it? Uh, everybody interprets. Uh, the biggest problem is when you think you're just reading it. Uh, and not interpreting it somehow. But Revelation, more than any other book, uh, it has to be interpreted because it's, it's, it's strange, but I think it is still, still relevant to us. Okay, any questions about uh, this, whole, this whole method here? Yes. Uh, yeah. Bonnie? I, I did not write down number one. Oh, okay. Method. Uh, the, the futurist perspective? Future, future, futuristic? Yeah, so that's the one that's all about prediction. And it's all about, it's a code, right? So Babylon is, is this country. The beast is this specific historical figure. And it's usually thinking it's, it's something that's about to happen. And it's focused on, on our time. Um, so I'd say it's often a little self-centered, right? Because it's, well, if Jesus is coming back, obviously he's going to do it in my lifetime because I'm that important, right? <laughs> when you say it like that, it, it sounds pretty silly, but that tends to be how a lot of people read things. Uh, they look at the world around them and say, yo, things are so bad now, Jesus has to come back soon. And hey, listen, I totally understand that perspective. I feel that sometimes. Uh, but to see that there's, there's been a lot of Christian history and things have often been uh, not great. Um, and we still see God working, but it's not just limited to our, our moment. All right. Thanks. Anyone, anyone else? Okay. I uh, will stop this for a second. So uh, as we get to this idea of, of understanding things in a symbolic way, I want to talk about this little exercise that we uh, maybe some of you got to look at this week. Um, so I don't know if people saw this already. It's I think it's in the chat. You could access it on Facebook. I'll share my screen in just a second so we can look at it as well. Uh, but the idea of things being literal or symbolic. And I've got here, uh, I think, 20 different examples of uh pictures in uh, in revelation do these images depict things as they literally exist or does it communicate truth metaphorically so uh just kind of look over that list i'll just give you a, a minute or two uh because hopefully some of you looked at it already and uh we'll just share a little bit which ones do you think are literal which ones do you think are symbolic um you know if you went through a number you know wrote it all out how many of each did you get? So things like Jesus is, is a slaughtered lamb um, with seven horns and seven eyes. Is that literal? Is that symbolic? Um, Jesus will return on a white horse wearing multiple crowns and a bloody robe and strike down nations with the sword of his mouth. Is that literal or symbolic? So just take a second and look over those things and, and we'll talk about what we think.
All right. So who wants to share? Uh, what was one that you think? Yeah, that's that's literally how it is. Or which what's one that's that's obviously has to be symbolic. Anyone go ahead. Anybody? Is Jesus literally a slaughtered lamb with uh I don't I don't recall reading about the seven-headed dragon that tried to eat Jesus in the nativity stories that I've read. Yeah, we forgot that at Christmas. But <laughs> yeah. We might have forgotten that in the last nativity play. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that is not literal. Okay. Uh, but does that mean what does that mean, right? What do you think it was trying to say, saying there was a dragon trying to devour Jesus when he was born? Could it mean Herod? Okay, yeah, we see Herod trying to kill him and um, somehow connected to the bigger evil that's behind Herod. Okay, someone else, let's just pick another one. Uh, what, what do you think would be obviously symbolic, which seemed like maybe that literally is what's, what is happening or is going to happen? Well, number one would be symbolic. Okay. Yeah, again, uh, you know, we're going to see that next week, right? He's got a sword in his mouth, and yet he's talking, right? <laughs> if that were literally true, it's kind of hard to talk with a sword coming out of your mouth. Painful. Um, so, yeah. Uh, some of these things, they, they kind of break down even and seem silly uh, when you try and take them literally, even if you just try and draw them, right? We'll look at that some through the series of people that have tried to illustrate some of these things, and it just it's just kind of funny uh, if you try and take it in that way. And yet, uh, we'll talk about what is what is being represented by that, right? The sword in his mouth. I think that's a powerful image about, um, you know, his word of judgment that Jesus speaks. Um, I think one, you know, as I've heard, as we've, as I've done this with other people, uh, what it talks about, uh, which, where is it? Uh, number three, or number two, right? God sits on a throne in heaven. Uh, we tend to think, well, yeah, that's, that's literally uh, because we see that all through scripture god's throne is, is a consistent thing not just in revelation and yet at the same time if we really took that literally what would that mean that would mean what god has a, a body god has a bottom that's in that chair um you know, how big is that chair uh even that i think in some sense is not totally literal it's a symbol of god's what authority power that god is like a king uh, heather you had a comment your hand raised so. yeah i was just i mean just looking at the list as you're screen sharing i'm thinking probably numbers 12 through 15 all seem like they're probably symbolic to me mm -hmm. yeah just i mean that's that's ones that like literally seated on the water sorted now mm -hmm. never lying yeah mm -hmm. yeah um i would i mean honestly my take on this i would say pretty much all of them are symbolic. Now, some, it, it probably, some seem more bizarre in their imagery than others. Um, and, you know, the idea of like us standing before the throne for judgment, um, maybe that is uh, pretty close to what will, will actually happen someday. And yet, uh, I think it's not wrong to say they're all symbolic in some sense. Um, and it being a symbol is not a bad thing. And that doesn't mean that we should take it any less seriously. So that's where I wanna go next. What do we mean by, by symbolism? So let me uh, share my screen again. We'll go back to our, our slides here. Um, 
So we want to talk first about the difference between symbol and code. Um, now, codes are one for one, right? This means only this one thing. Um, and symbols and codes are different, right, though. Um, a traffic signal, for example, is basically like a code. Red means stop. Uh, that's not up for interpretation. If you run a red light and then try and uh, interpret that red light as meaning something else in traffic court, it's probably not going to work, right? Uh, that is one for one. Uh, so a red light is a code that means stop. But a symbol is a little bit more than that. It, it's not trying to hide the truth. It's trying to reveal the truth on a deeper level. Right? So that's why we talk about Jesus as a slaughtered lamb. Right? Not because he literally was uh, a mammal with a slit throat, but because uh, he's fulfilling this picture of, of self-sacrifice uh, because he is uh, a meek right, and humble and not what you would expect from the king of all the earth. Uh, one uh, writer whose name literally is Eugene Boring, which is pretty amazing, uh, he says, John used symbols in order to communicate that which cannot be expressed in any other way, not to conceal something that could be said more straightforwardly, right? That's what a code does. It's trying to hide something until you know how to decode it. Um, and, but it's just kind of, you could say it straightforwardly, but you're trying to hide it for some reason. Symbols don't do that. They're communicating, communicating something even more, more deeply. Uh, instead of just saying Jesus is humble, Jesus is meek, Jesus uh, is, gives himself in self-sacrifice, you can say Jesus is a slaughtered lamb, and that communicates that in a different way. Um, you know, we want to avoid turning poetry into prose uh, when possible, because that sometimes destroys its power. Now, as we go through it, obviously, we want to try and understand what is he trying to say here, but sometimes if it's poetic, it just kind of has to, you can't interpret everything that it means. Uh, symbols also communicate multiple messages, uh, depending on your perspective, right? And that's what we saw as we looked at Kind of our method of interpreting things, the symbol of Babylon can mean a lot of different things depending on uh, where you're at in history or where you are in the world right now. Um, and so they, they have this, uh, I would say they're more powerful because they mean more than one thing. Um, contrary to those who want to limit this, this is just a code and then you know the number of the beast is talking about this one person. Although I would say I think that's one case where uh, the 666 number is talking about a specific person, but it's someone in the past in the Roman Empire. So that one's not as relevant. So see, when it is a code, it tends to not be relevant for very many people. Um, so there's this idea that, that seems to be in the air that I hear a lot that um, if it's symbolic, then you're not taking it very seriously. And if I take it literally, then I'm taking it more seriously than you are. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that. Uh, some, saying something is symbolic, we're still saying that it comes from God. We're still saying that it's true. We're just talking about in what sense it is true, right? And that's, uh, that's an important distinction to make uh, to understand what something is trying to say. Uh, it's not just saying something is literal doesn't, or saying I take everything literally doesn't mean you're better at interpreting. In fact, I think a lot of times that, that means you're not interpreting as, as clearly. You know, the word literal itself, originally that meant reading something according to its, its genre of literature, right? What kind of literature is this? That's how you read it literally or literarily. Um, and in fact, those who claim that they're taking things literally in Revelation, 
they often aren't actually. Um, so for example, there's a passage we saw it in, in that sheet where it talks about these locusts that have long hair and armor. Um, some have interpreted that to say, well, that's talking about helicopters, right? A, a modern 21st century image. That's not taking that literally. Uh, if it's literal, then they actually are giant locusts, not helicopters. You're just reading a symbol as a code in that way, right? So even the way that people use the word literal sometimes, they're not actually doing what they say they're doing. And so when we say that they're symbols, I think we're being more honest to what they are and how they work. And we're still finding ways that, that they're relevant to us without having to go to the simplistic kind of code uh, readings. Right, any questions or, or comments on, on all that? We're doing on time. Okay. And again, you know, this is setting things up. We'll see this more as we look at some of these symbols in the coming weeks of, okay, how can we understand this? Why is reading this in a symbolic way more helpful to us? All right. So as we, as we finish up here, the last little thing we want to talk about is just um, some of the basics of who, when, and where, the authorship, the setting. So first of all, who is John the Revelator? Uh, now, traditionally, it's associated with John the Apostle, the author of the fourth gospel. Um, but we don't see any stylistic connections uh, between the gospels and Revelation. You expect there'd be a little bit of overlap, right? You read the gospel of John and the letters of John. Those are very clearly the same author because of the way that, that both of those talk. And yet we don't really see much overlap with, with Revelation. Um, you see, he calls himself a prophet consistently through through the book, but he doesn't call himself uh, an apostle. And in fact, uh, there's a place in chapter 21 where John talks about the apostles as a group, but it doesn't sound like he's part of that group. Um, so uh, he's definitely Jewish because he knows uh, the scriptures very well. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, he alludes to them all the time without directly quoting them. Um, and so we don't know for sure. It could be the same John it could be a different John. And I think there's a little more evidence that it's a, a different John. Uh, but he doesn't come out and say straight, straight forward. Uh, it says that he's exiled to Patmos, uh, which is an island um, off the coast of, of where uh, the, he's writing to. Um, and so he's clearly known to these, these churches. Um, so he's probably could be from that area, in fact. Um, but that's about all we know as far as who John the Revelator is. Uh, the date, probably, we don't, again, we don't know for sure, but it's, many commentators assume that it's around the year 96, um, during the reign of Domitian. Uh, he was uh, one of the Roman emperors who uh, was pretty terrible. Um, he, he was responsible for a, a good deal of persecution. Uh, it seems pretty clear that Revelation is set after the year AD 70, when the Roman Empire, um, uh, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Uh, and so it's, it's probably picking up on some of that, uh, those events that had happened. Uh, and so then it, it would be a little bit later during that time. We'll talk more about reasons for that later as well. The context, right? Why is he writing and why is he, what is he trying to address for the people that he's writing to? There's clearly some context of, of persecution, but also I would say some of assimilation. Right uh, now, we know from Christ from history that there wasn't this like empire-wide policy against Christians uh, until quite a bit later. I think in the second, maybe even the third century. Um, 
Now, so at this point, really, it's like we, the Roman Empire didn't really know what to do with Christians. And so in some places, they were harsh with them. Sometimes they ignored them. Uh, we see that sometimes persecution would break out for a little bit, and then it would settle down. Uh, but there wasn't this like policy across the entire empire yet. Uh, one of the big moments of persecution that happened in the early church was in the mid-60s under the emperor Nero. Uh, he famously burned Rome, uh, and then uh, he blamed Christians for that fire that he had started. Uh, it was during this persecution that both Peter and Paul were executed by the Roman Empire. And so we're going to see Nero, even though it's past his time and he's supposedly dead, um, he's still kind of a figure that looms in history as someone who uh, did terrible things to Christians. Um, and yet, even though there has been some persecution, uh, a lot of times the real problem is assimilation, right? That Christians are actually kind of comfortable with the Roman Empire. They don't mind um, what, what Rome is doing as long as um, they can be comfortable. Maybe some of them are even benefiting from it. You know, again, we're thinking of people who their whole life, they've been a part of Roman Empire and, and you know, pagan religion. And so it's, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, Rome's not that bad. You know, I'm still going to do these sacrifices or go to these places or eat these certain things. Uh, so I think Revelation is also trying to um, uh, work uh, and challenge those Christians. And I think that's where this book is also really relevant to us, that that, that often is the easier temptation uh, for us or the more common problem that Christians will just maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally give in to, to other powers and, and not live out the way of Jesus uh, like we're called to. And so that's why we see this book is, uh, you'll see this very clearly in these letters to the seven churches at the beginning, that there's encouragement for some of them, but also a lot of, hey, you need to, you need to get back to your first love. You need to cut some of these things out. Right? So it's both this comfort and challenge. Uh, very much in the tradition of biblical prophets. So John is doing the same thing here. So, all right, it's a lot of information. Next week, we'll actually get to uh, the book itself. Uh, any, any final questions or comments as we're, we're wrapping up here? I think I muted everyone, so uh, you can unmute yourself or ask me to unmute if you need to. Anything else before we close? All right. Well, I hope this has been uh, enough to keep you interested <laughs> as we look at this book. Uh, like, again, I think it is going to be really interesting and hopefully relevant somehow to our experience today. Uh, but ultimately, it's about seeing what God, what Christ, what they are doing even now uh, in the midst of a world that's often dark to, to bring victory for us uh, and unveiling that victory.